Okay, let's start off with the first word, maybe. Because I, this, is, this happens to just be my, my, uh, or my word. Beyond the first word. Bayar Bolok Ben Zippor. Bolok Ben Zippor saw. What did he see? So the Pasuk says, Bayar Bolok Ben Zippor is kosher also, Yisrael Amori. Bolok saw all that the Jews had done to the Amorites. Sichon, oh, he conquered them. What I find striking about this is the following. I think this is a lesson we could learn from this. There are two parshis in the Torah named after Goyim. Exactly. Yisro and Bolok. Two Goyim. And they both start off sort of similar. Vayar Bolok. Bolok saw. Well, why does it say that he heard? Vayishma Bolok. He heard what happened. How does Yisro start off? Vayishma Yisro. Yisro heard. And what did Yisro hear? Everything that happened to Israel. Same kind of thing. The war with Amalek, Egypt, and everything else. Bolok sees. Yisro hears. It's interesting, the Zohar says the two were related. The Bolok happened to be related to Yisrael. He was one of his, an anical or something like that. But isn't it interesting, the, the same kind of information or data comes to a person, one person is galvanized one way, and the other person is in the totally opposite direction. And the two parashis in the Torah are very significant ones. Why? Because with Yisrael, the parash that we name after Yisrael is where the Ten Commandments were. The parash of Bolok is the prophecies of Bilam, which are from the most eloquent and poetic parshias, and in fact, some of the clearest prophecies and references to Mashiach in the Torah are in the prophecies of Bilam. As a matter of fact, the Gemara, strangely enough, when it goes through all the authors of all of the different parts of Tanakh, who wrote this Sefer, who wrote that Sefer, says, Moshe wrote the Torah, and Parshas Bilam. In other words, like it's given its own, its own uh, mark of distinction. That, that uh, Shmuel wrote uh, Shmuel, and he wrote Shoftim, and he wrote. Oh, so it comes out that the Torah refers the, the Gemara and Balmas when it talks about who wrote what. Shmuel wrote this, and Yishai wrote this. Moshe wrote what? Chamishay Chum Torah, and the episode of Bilam, the prophecies of Bilam. It's a separate, separate thing. Prophecies. You're right. <laughs> the, the prophecies of Bilam are from the most remarkable, and just the way it's written, even the it's so the prose, the, the, the um, power of the and the majesty of the words, the eloquence. Bilam was considered his prophecies were on par with Moshe's prophecies. Lo, come Moshe. No, no prophet ever rose amongst the Jews like Moshe. Amongst the Goyim, there was Bilam is considered comparable in certain ways to Moshe. We'll have to go into that more later on. But, so in a certain sense, the parasha of Yisro and the parasha of Bolok have tremendously significant prophecies. As a matter of fact, the Gemara says that they wanted to really incorporate this as part of Shema in the daily davening, the prophecies of Bilam. But they both start off with something that, it's also another interesting point I just want to point out, is that this whole story of Bolok and Bilam is something that happened that the Jews didn't even realize as it was occurring. Right? This all occurred outside of the Jewish encampment, which we don't have over here. So now we've had everything once the Jews came down to Egypt, and from then on, everything's occurring with Moshe. Everything is occurring with the Jewish people. Here, this is an entire episode that from start to finish had absolutely nothing to do with the Jewish people. It was occurring over there in Moab. It's going on between Bilam and Bolok. 
And as far as the Jews were concerned, they never even knew about this. And that's why in this week's Haftarah, it talks about the fact that the Jews should recognize the great kindnesses that Hashem does to the Jews without us even realizing it. As you know, I once told you the word, how was Hashem called Goyim? Shabchu Kaluim Ki Chasdo. The Goyim and the nations have to praise Hashem for all the kindnesses that He does us. Why should the Goyim praise Hashem? We have to praise Hashem. Terrence says we don't even know all the plots that they're constantly hatching against us. If we would know all the different things that Hashem has to foil that the Goyim are hatching against us, we would really have what to praise. The Goyim know better than anybody else what plots they're always plotting against against the Jewish people. How was Hashem called Goyim? Shabchu called Kigovar Oleinu Chazdo. So, Bilam and Bolak, the Jews didn't even know about all this. All of a sudden, Bilam has you have one miracle after the other with the donkey and with Bilam the way he talks. All this is occurring without the Jews even realizing it later on. We'll talk later about how great the kindness itself was. But just, this is all occurring outside of the Jewish encampment. But take a look at the difference between the reaction to certain information when you see Hashem does miracles, Yisro's reaction is by Yishma Yisro. He hears, he understands, he perceives, and he learns a lesson that lifts him up. Because everybody else heard it also. But it was enough to get him to convert, to join the Jewish people. He, be- I mean, he was attached to the Jewish people. That's why he had a son-in-law like Moshe. By Yishma Yisro. That's even second-hand information was sufficient for him. Bolok, by Yar Bolok, he sees what's happening. He sees the miracles totally different response it's a totally different response he could see it you give the person everything and this gets to the heart of what the whole parsha of Bilam and Bolok is about as Rashi tells us Rashi says that why did Hashem give give prophecy to the Goyim so that the Goyim shouldn't say well if you'd have given us prophecy we would have been just like the Jews the point is you could do everything you could give the same information and one guy is going to become a Yisro and the other guy is going to become a Bolok and Bolok uses the same information and he wants to curse and he wants to destroy and he wants to uh, cause devastation in the world. So you have, it's interesting just Vayishma Yisro, Vayar Bolok. And you see the different responses because ultimately Hashem could do anything that He wants. It's not going to help unless the human being on his own is w- willing to accept it and to utilize it in the proper way. I always say over nuclear energy, it could be either fission or fusion it could either be destructive or it could power and energize the world. That's what you do with it. You could turn it into nuclear fission. You could turn it into nuclear fusion. So that right away we see from the beginning of the parsha, And the whole parsha really goes on this theme. It just means because of the fact that these were prophecies that were not given to Moshe himself. They were prophecies on par with Moshe's prophecy given to someone else. And he wrote down those prophecies. And all I'm saying now in terms of the difference in seeing and hearing is two things. Number one, that one guy only has to hear and look at his response. And the other one could see it all clearly and still he has a negative response. But the key to the deal is Vayishma Yisra, that Yisra not only heard, but he understood the message of that. Uh, as they say in Yiddish, uh, their heard. It was more than just hearing. It's, it's fully assimilated. But, you know, you could give the person everything straight out and you could see it, but you're blind. And Yisra could hear it. We have a lot of kashas on this this parsha. Number of kashas. What happens? Bolok calls Bilam. Bilam is this great. We don't need to know what he is exactly. We have to understand what that is all about. He wants to curse the Jews. We have the miracle of the donkey talking. 
Yisrael Bilom can't curse. He has to bless. Let's let's take out a few points. You know what? Let's start off maybe with Rebbeinu Bachai. this. The parsha says that Hashem tells Bilom, "Don't curse them. I don't even want you to bless them. They're a blessed nation. I don't want you to do anything." So in the second line, look what it says over there. Ubekan Yesh Lisho. He has an obvious kasha here. Does Bilam actually have power to damage or to bless? Does he have the power? Doesn't he? It's an obvious question. If you say that Bilam did have this such a power, how could that be? Does a human being have the power to change the word of God? If Hashem wants the Jews to be blessed, so did Bilam actually have a power to curse them? How could that be? How could a human being be capable of changing the the gzair of Hashem? If Hashem decrees on the Jews that they are blessed, how? Why is Hashem so concerned with Bilam's curse? He blessed the Jews. He's afraid of Bilam. What's Bilam's great power? The imtaimar. And if you're going to say lo and if you're going to say that Bilam has no power, obviously, you know, how can Bilam curse against God's will? In that case, who cares what he does? So why did Hashem, why was Hashem concerned with him not doing it? Why does Hashem say, don't curse them? Let him stand day and night cursing the Jews all he wants. God says, I bless you, you can curse all you want. So one or the other. If Bilam has power, it's inconceivable. If Bilam doesn't have the power, so why is Hashem concerned that he causes this whole this whole episode over here? So what's going on? As the Pasik says, until me quotes, Let them curse all they want. You're blessed. You have nothing to worry about. So what is shot in Bilam's curses and blessings? So we'll take a look at an interesting Meshachachma shortly to understand a very interesting point that he says over here. But we have now a kasha. What was Bilam's power? Why was Hashem concerned with Bilam's power? Why does he have to make a miracle of the donkey talking? Either, or another simple kasha. If Hashem doesn't want Bilam to curse, there's many ways he could have prevented him. Instead of letting him go and trying to stop him and having a donkey talk and then bringing him there and forcing Bilam to bless and everything else, he should have said, hey Bilam, you can't curse and that's it. He can't go. Or he could have put us he could have made him fall asleep, or he could have broken a leg, or whatever it is, he could have gone he could have become dumb and not be able to talk. There's a lot of things Hashem could have done rather than have this whole parsha unfold the way it unfolds. So a lot of kashas over here as to understanding what the episode of Bilam is all about. What is the power of his curses? Certainly once we have the problem of trying to understand that Chazal actually placed Bilam on par with Moshe in prophecy. Now I don't want to really get into this because this is a very difficult area. The Rambam spends a great deal of time in his Moran um, Nevuchim. The Rishonim speak about it. What does it mean if Bilam was on the same level as Moshe Rabbeinu? How could that be? We all know that when we've learned the laws of prophecy, that the requirements of being a prophet is, of course, you have to be very wise, which Bilam conceivably was. He may have been on the same level as Moshe Rabbeinu in wisdom, but as the Gemara points out over here, and as Rashi points out, at every obvious spot, we're not going to go through all the different proofs of this. Bilam had every terrible, mida, bad character trait, characteristic possible. He was 
a person who had tremendous desire and lust, and he wanted to have it all. He had an evil eye. He was a jealous person. He was a person who was haughty and arrogant. Totally the opposite of Moshe Rabbeinu. In fact, we've once explained that the prophecy of Moshe was precisely so unique because of this humility. Because if a person is able to make himself into nothing, then he's able to get the full message of Hashem in its full power to transmit it. But if you are arrogant and you consider yourself to be something, that's automatically going to interfere with the message coming from Hashem. So how could Bilam be a prophet of power with Moshe when he had just the opposite of Moshe in terms of arrogance? Or as Chazal say in the Mishnah in Pirkei Ovis, in the um, fifth parak of Pirkei Ovis, um, just the, let's see, where is it brought down? The, the, the quote on, on the second page over there. Um, this is the quote from Pirkei Ovis. Call me Sheyesh by Shloisha Dvorim Halalu. It's nothing that you're going to have to understand what this mission is trying to say. He who has these three character traits, is considered a disciple of Avram. Three opposite things, you're considered a disciple of Bilam. What are the three traits? A good eye, you view things properly, you view things good in its good light, you're not jealous, you will allow people to have what's theirs, and you know... You don't look at everybody and with the, with a sense of trying to to like you don't forget as they say in Yiddish or you don't want to pull it away from them. You look at things with a good eye, like like Bilam was just the opposite. Whatever he looked at, he wanted to see it in his worst possible light. If an ayin taiva, that's Avram. Ruach Namucha. A um, humble spirit, a lowly spirit, nefesh fala, a more content soul that you're content with having things not in um, you don't have to have it all then you're a Talmud of Avram Avinu you're just the opposite an ayin raw the evil eye ruach gavaya arrogance of spirit nefesh rechava a broad desire to try to take everything you possibly can from the world never satisfied a lack of satisfaction then you're a Talmud of Bilam Russia. why we contrast Bilam with Avram we'll have to see as well and why do we have to talk about the disciples of Bilam versus the disciples of Avram? Why don't we talk about Bilam versus Avram? There's another question that I'll just answer. I once heard this from my um, father-in-law. Uh, he once said that sometimes when you look at people, at great people certainly, it's difficult to tell the difference, even if they are vast. But if they're great people, like, you know, you know where you tell? You look at their disciples. You look at what they produce. You look at their followers. That's where you could see how, you know, at the top, the change of direction could be very significant, but imperceptible. As the change of the direction continues and follows down the path, that's where you see the differences. If you look at who are the people that are the followers of this kind of a person versus the followers of that kind of person, that's where you see the differences. Dilom and Avram sometimes is difficult to see the differences. The Talmidei Bilam, Talmidei Avram, that's where you see the difference. You see where the Jews turn into, and you see what the followers of Bilam turn into. The point, though, is Bilam had all of these character traits that are totally opposite to the to being able to, have, to produce prophecy. So how could Bilam be a prophet, certainly on par with Moshe? To be able to give us Torah on the level of Moshe, how could that be? So we have to understand that as well. And then, of course... 
we have the donkey story that we have to understand as to why Hashem actually makes a miracle where the donkey communicates with Dilam and tries to give him a message. What? Why such a miracle? What does that tell us? So what's this whole Pasha Bilam about? So a lot of kashas here. Let's maybe start off with the Gemara. This Gemara, which we once learned as part of the Ein Yaakov, and we'll use this as a springboard for some of the lessons which we could learn from here. And then we can see the key maybe eventually to what this whole Bilam story is about because some of the most profoundest lessons of all could be learned out from here in terms of the mysteries of the universe. Cosmic lessons could be learned out from the story of Bilam. We'll start with the Gemara in Brachas, which is, which is repeated in Sanhedrin. But the Gemara in Brachas starts it off a little differently, so we'll start it off with the Gemara in Brachas, and then we'll continue with the Gemara in Sanhedrin. The Gemara in Brachas says, right on top, next door to Rebbe Nebuchadnezzar, Omer Rabbi Yechelon Mishim Rabbi Yaisi, how do we know that you're not supposed to try to um, assuage someone and try to appease someone when they're, angry. when they're angry when they lost their temper? How do we know we're not supposed to? Yeah. yeah. Because when a person has lost his temper, you got to wait till it passes, his wrath passes. It's not the time to do it. Or like the Gemara says, when a person has his dead person in front of him, it's not the time to start telling the oval. It's okay, it'll be okay. Nichum when you try to console someone, is not when he's in the midst of his greatest anguish. When a person lost his temper, you wait a little bit. And then you come back to him. So where do we learn this? We learn this from Hashem. When Hashem was angry at the Jewish people for the sin of the ego, so Moshe Rabbein was trying to pray. So Hashem says, My face will pass. And I will allow you. Says the Gemara, Darshan's on this Pasik, Wait a little bit till my face of wrath passes by, and then you could deal with me. In other words, don't get me when I'm all upset. This is Hashem talking. Philly Floyd. So the Gemara, so me, Ikar, Rizcha, Kame, Kutshebrichu. Does Hashem have such an uncontrollable rage? I mean, we know that uh, for a Rodney King verdict, you become enraged and, and that's it. you got to let him loot and riot and rampage and pillage. For a days, you can't deal with them. They're irrational. But does Hashem have an uncontrollable, irrational rage that you can't talk to him then? Such a thing we say about Hashem? Yeah. Correct? So how could he tell Moshe, don't pray until that passes? Says the Gemara... In, yes, Hashem has such a thing. The Sanya, as it says, the Kale Zoyim Bechol Yoyim, the God who is wrathful on a daily basis. Then the Gemara goes and says, how long is he wrathful for? For only one moment. Kirega ba'apochayim. We say that in Mashir, his wrath is for a moment, but his kindness is forever. Then the Gemara goes on to say. You know what? Look in the um, and nobody knows exactly when that moment of wrath is, except for Bilam, as it says, Now, in other words, so first let's understand the first part of the Gemara. First part of the Gemara also straight. Before we even get to Bilam, the Gemara tells us that Hashem has an uncontrollable rage 
at which time even Moshe can't pray on behalf of the Jewish people. It's a moment, it's a momentary thing, but it's there and it's not a time to talk to Hashem. You can't ask for mercy. It's on a daily basis. How does the Gemara learn after that Pasuk? Because to utilize the phrase that Hashem has zam or wrath on a daily basis, not in response to sin, it means you're predicting now. It's almost like when you start saying that, um, I guarantee you that tomorrow there's going to be a report of a murder in the city of New York. And you'll read in the paper about some sort of a murder. Now, it's possible, theoretically, that tomorrow no one's going to murder anybody. We just happen to know that there's so much crime that by laws of probability, someone's going to die every single day. But obviously, a person has no right as a reporter to say in advance that someone is going to kill somebody else. How could David HaMelech write and tell him, Hashem is angry every day. Anger is generally in response to our sins. So to say that Hashem was angry in the past, you could say, but to predict for the future, for all eternity, that Hashem is going to be angry every single day, how can you say such a thing? Teretz is. It means this point, that there seems to be a moment on a daily basis that Hashem allows wrath to go forth uncontrolled, unrestrained. What does that mean? What's pshat that? How could it be that Hashem on a daily basis is going to be like that? Teretz is, say something in the We know that when Hashem created the world, He wanted the world to run with Midas Hadin, with the attribute of justice, strict justice. And the attribute of justice is really the primary um, point of the purpose of the creation. Nature runs with justice, the laws of nature. Never do the laws of nature become suspended. They always run. Rachmanus Rachamim is a suspension of the natural law of how the universe is supposed to operate. The universe is supposed to operate with strict justice. Rachmim comes in and it's suspended and it, and it effectively tries to somehow withhold it and it inhibits it. It's an inhibition on it. But Hashem saw that human beings in the world can't function on the natural way of Midas Hadin. So He allowed Rachmim to join as a partner with Din and that's the way the world operates. That's the way the world operates. Well, that's what we're saying. The point is, that, but it's not the way the world was supposed to run. In the beginning, Hashem created, it was Elohim. Midas Hadin. No, none of that stuff. What you're saying. No All that is, is, is a suspension of the natural law of the way the world was supposed to operate. Hashem wanted the world to operate the way nature operates. If you drink poison, it affects you, you die. No, you don't have to have the Rav Chesed. The world was not supposed to be like that. That wasn't the way the world was supposed to run. But Hashem saw the world was not going to function well if it's going to be Midas Hadin, because human beings are incapable of that. Therefore, he was Mishatev, Chesed, and Rachman within, joined as a partnership. All the Chesed and Rachman you're talking about comes afterwards, but it's not the primary purpose of creation. We find a few isolated places of where the Midas Hadin is allowed to be in full control by itself. A few isolated points in history. Where do we find it? Says the Shalom that the reason in the story of Rabbi Akiva, where Rabbi Akiva is being tortured in a manner where it's almost inconceivable and incomprehensible, the great Rabbi Akiva, the angels couldn't comprehend it. And they come to Hashem, says the Gemara, 
and says, Zutor, Zutora. This is how you're rewarding Rabbi Akiva. And what did Hashem say to that? It's good kasha, huh? It's not, that's not what Hashem says to the angels. That's what Rabbi Akiva said. He said to them, don't ask. Keep quiet. He said, keep quiet. He said, Shesayk, Kach Ola B'machshavah L'fonai. Quiet. I'll turn back the world to total boat, to null and void. If you make another sound, this was my original intent. That's what the, that's the response that Hashem gave. Shesayk, quiet. Kach Ola B'machshavah L'fonai T'chila. This was my mindset from Lafonai Tchila, the beginning. What does that mean? Says the Shalom, there were very few people worthy of allowing the full attribute of the Midas Hadin to clash with them, to join up with them. Rabbi Akiva, being as worthy as he was, was the generator that allowed the universe to exist. Because ultimately, what powers the universe is the Midas Hadin. Hashem wanted to create the world like that, and He allowed Chesed and all that. But if you don't have, you, know, you can have this huge, you know, sometimes when you go into uh, one of these nuclear facilities, what do you see over there? Yeah, a huge building with all kinds of machinery and people equipment. And you say, what's this all about? Powering the whole world. Powering the whole city. What's powering it? And you go into one small area and inside of this, what was a small little thing, a little bit of uranium or plutonium, and this powers and generates the entire thing. Everything's built all around that. There has to be a little bit of Midas Hadin that powers the whole universe. And Rabbi Akiva was <coughs> the Midas Hadin. We don't even understand how or why. The angels didn't understand that. That's what Hashem says. Quiet. Because otherwise I'll destroy the whole universe. <laughs> this was the original intent of the universe. To have Midas Hadin. Now once we understand that, and therefore we can see the greatness of the Asar Haruge Malchus. We can see the greatness of Rabbi Akiva. And the ten martyrs, and that's why we say that where they stand, nobody in the universe can stand. Because they're the nuclear power, they power the universe. They're the ones that were able to have the Midas Hadin. This explains the whole concept of Mashiach. Where Mashiach, the whole idea of Mashiach suffering, and the Jewish people suffering. It, the world is dealt with kindness. We are the ones that are constantly punished. But we power the universe. Ultimately, when Mashiach comes and everything is finally rectified, then things will function the way they're supposed to. But to a great extent, tzaddikim that suffer, suffer the, the full wrath of the Midas Hadin in order to keep the generator going, to keep the power going. So you have to be at a very high madrega for that. The Jewish people collectively is that. Mashiach is supposed to be that as an individual. And that's what Rabbi Akiva was. And that's what the greatest people always were. So Hashem told the angels, I can't explain to you, this is the, what generates the power in the world. Therefore, we need a moment on a daily basis where Midas Hadin reigns supreme. That's what it means. Kael Zoyan Bechol Yom. Doesn't mean that God goes on an uncontrolled rage and rampage. What it means is that Midas Hadin, the attribute of justice, goes unfettered without any kind of of inhibitions, and therefore you can't talk to God in mercy. Even Moshe Rabbeinu can't go to Hashem and say, "Have mercy on the Jewish people." Now is not the time. Now is not the time. This is a time for Midas Hadin. Midas Hadin is strict justice. Strict justice, uninhibited. So you can't appeal. There's no court of appeal. There's no way of appealing to strict justice. If Rabbi Akiva suffered the way he did, then we can't go and appeal to Hashem. You know what? Forgive the eagle. Forgive this sin. Forgive that sin. That's, that's Rachman. Rachman is a different story. 
Kirega Ba'apo Chaim Ritzono. The rest of the day, the rest of the world runs with Chesed. But there has to be pure, unadulterated Midas Hadin that last for at least a moment in order that the universe should function. Just like Rabbi Akiva has to have the full brunt of the Midas Hadin reach him, the world has to have Midas Hadin lying unfettered. That's what it means, Kel Zayim B'chol Yom, that Hashem has the power of the universe. Zam. Can be also through Tshuva. Tshuva is an appeal to Rachman. No, there's no such thing as Tshuva. You do, will not allow for Tshuva. Cannot have Tshuva. How can I have Tshuva? The whole idea of Din, justice, you kill someone, the guy is dead, you cannot do Tshuva. How can you do Tshuva after the fact? That's why courts of Beisdin do not allow for Tshuva. If you worship an idol and there's witnesses, they stone you. Even if you say afterwards, oh yeah, I want to do Tshuva. There's no Tshuva. Beisdin has to work with Din. In fact, the end of the parsha of Balak deals precisely with this point. The Jews worshipped idols. Hashem says, if you don't want the Jews to be totally destroyed, you need some din. Some din has to be done. Finally, who does the din? Pinchas. Hashem says he saved the wrath. Pinchas' greatness was, he was this generator. He was this nuclear material that's able to power the whole universe and allow for all the other wrath. But he did. That's why courts can't start working with with uh, chesed and rachamim. You killed someone, okay, so we're, we're going to forgive you? It doesn't work like that. Hashem forgives, din can't forgive, right? And nature works the same way. Go to nature and say, have mercy, I'm doing tshuva. I'm sorry that I spent my entire life smoking two packs a day. What are you going to do about it now? Your lung looks like uh, the inside of a coal mine. What are you going to do about it? You're eating cholesterol, you're, I want to do tshuva. How do you do tshuva? You have to work it off. But that's not true anymore. That's din. Then you have to suffer for it. What are you going to do if you eat poison? You're going to do chuva on it? There's no chuva there. So how can there be chuva and din? Din and chuva are opposites. But Hashem allows for it. But that's what Hashem is saying to Moshe. Now is not the time to talk to me about allow the moment to pass. Then talk to me. So even the greatest of prophets, Moshe, cannot appeal to Hashem if you're dealing with Midas Hadin. Now we can understand the greatness of Yaakov Avinu. When Yaakov Avinu says, if you give me bread and food, Hashem will be my God. And we've always questioned, what does it mean? He's going to... Yaakov was saying, as the Sporno says, I'm willing to live on Elohim. The original intent of the universe. Not Hashem, but Elohim. That's the way the world works. That's the greatness of Yaakov. But very few individuals were capable of reaching that level. Yaakov, Rabbi Akiva... But that's, that's where the world survives on account of them. So therefore the world requires Kael Zayim B'chol Yom in order that, that, that the world should operate. Now we can come to understand what was Bilam's greatness. Bilam was able to precisely look at the moment of Hashem's wrath and take advantage of it. And that's why Bilam's curses would have been effective. Why would his curses be effective? Because of the fact that at that moment there is no appeal to mercy, and Moshe Rabbeinu can't interfere. No one can interfere with the with the workings of this thing. Bilam was able to focus on this nuclear fission and cause a nuclear reaction and cause an explosion. And he would know how to take advantage of Hashem's wrath. 
That's a tremendous power. So it says over here. So now let's go through the Gemara. So it says, "Biyodei Adas El Yom." Bilam claims, "I know the mind of God." So the Gemara says, "Hashto Das Behemtalo Haviyoda Das El Yom Haviyoda." How can he make such a claim? He can't even. He doesn't even know what his animals thinking about. How could he claim to know the mind of God? Then we'll skip the bracketed part. That goes into a whole dialogue and debate between Bilam and his donkey. And uh, the ultimate conclusion of all that is that Bilam was a sexual pervert who committed acts of bestiality with his donkey. But it's time to get to us right now. We'll start from after the brackets. Elamai Biodea Das What does it mean after the brackets that he knows the mind of Hashem? He knew the precise moment of Hashem's anger. Now we can already appreciate what it says in the Haftarah, this week's Haftarah, when you'll read it. The Haftarah says that Hashem says, Ami, my nation, listen to the great things that I did for you. Take a look at the counsel of Bolok, the bottom of the page that what he wanted to do to curse the Jews and what I did for you in order to know the great righteousness of Hashem what's the great righteousness that he so, so what did Hashem actually do how did he counteract the influence of Bilam what did he do so he says says the Gemara the Gemara continues did the Jews don't even realize because they didn't know about this at the time but now Hashem is informing him Take a look, you should know. Look at all the great kindnesses that I did to you that you don't even realize. That, in, that, that during those days that Bilam was there trying to curse the Jews, Hashem suspended this law of nature. Now that's a miracle. That's a tremendous miracle. Hashem had to suspend the essence of the law of nature. Now we can appreciate, I mean, otherwise, what's going on? But, now you can understand it. And the Gemara is very very clear. Had I have allowed my wrath to function the way and operate the way it normally does, that's a euphemism for the Jews. Namely, there wouldn't have been one remnant left of the Jewish people. That's what Bilam says to Bolok. How could I curse if Hashem doesn't? Or... As the, and as it continues to say, Pasik um, says, How can I, and Pasik Ches, How could I curse if God doesn't? How could I be wrathful if Hashem isn't? If Hashem doesn't have the Zam. If this moment of Zam is not there, I can't do anything. That's what Bilam is saying in this Pasik. I can't do it without this. And, it's an amazing thing. It's just not there. Bilam knew how to do it. More so than anybody else. Moshe didn't know it. Only Bilam knew this. That's what it says. What do you mean? No, I'm saying, but the point is, this is where Bilam's power was. Bilam was on an equal footing with knowing the mind of God as Moshe. One for good, one for evil. Bilam was able to draw at the Midas Hadin and this, that's part of his his brilliance also. He was a, he was a brilliant person, as we see from the ultimate devil. But we see his brilliance from his Nebuah even. So Bilam was tremendously advanced. But he utilized it all for evil. 
to look at that moment of God, Moshe was Moshe didn't even see any of that. It's like people. I, I, I mean, I remember my mother was telling me this, you know, towards the end of her life, where she said she didn't know that people could be bad. I mean, she went through concentration camps, but she was talking about Jews. And she just never saw evil. Like you're naive. You go through life and you just don't see it. You don't see all the evil around you. And if you focus on the good, it's. Dylan didn't see anything good. He saw everything evil. He used his brilliance and his powers and he rose and rose to the highest levels but he was able to isolate that moment and utilize that for cursing. Moshe didn't even have that. The two are on equal footing, one for good, one for evil. One with the, and it all comes from character traits. Not brilliance. Brilliance has nothing to do with it. You could be wickedly evil and you could be wickedly great or you could be goodly great. But the two are counterparts. So when, when Rashi says that the, that the Austin saw the, the Mazikin. The Mazikin and, 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 and Bill. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. That, that, that's referring to the fact that, that Hashem... Well, we'll have to talk about the, about the angel later. We'll get to that. So that's what it says. The wrath is only for a moment. Hashem's wrath is for a moment. Life is everlasting. He boys aim with another apostle that he uses is Leichimi Bobcha Derecha Sgord Losecha go into your room, lock the doors, Babcha, Khabi Kamat Rega. Hide yourself for for a rega for a moment. Adyavor Zam till the Zam passes by. That's another apostle that tells us the same thing. And then the Gemara says something very, very mysterious. And I never knew Pshat in this Gemara until I saw another Rebbeinu Bachai, which we'll maybe get to. Is yes. Tar says, when the crop of the cock turns white, completely white, of the rooster, the rooster has that thing over there, yeah. and when it turns white, completely white, that's the moment. And therefore, um, the Gemara says, but sometimes it turns white anyway. He says, no, no. At this moment, it's completely white with no red streaks in it at all. Completely white. Then the Gemara says the following story. There was this this person that was aggravating Rabbi Shubin Levi. One day Rabbi Shubin Levi says, you know what, I'm going to get rid of this guy. So what does he do? He gets himself a rooster and he ties it to the foot of his bed and he starts watching it intently to see when the moment where it's going to turn completely white is. And he says, I'm going to use that moment to curse my enemy and get rid of him once and for all. And get rid of him. So he ties him up to the foot of his bed and he's waiting and waiting and waiting until he could finally curse him, falls asleep. Yeah, he's waiting over there. You can imagine you're staring, you know, it's a pretty boring program over there, you know, just one one scene. By the time he wakes up, the time has passed. He says, you know what? I learned a lesson from this. It's not proper for Tzadikim to utilize these methods of cursing. Even for for a person as evil as this person that's aggravating me. So therefore, he's not gonna he's not gonna do it. So he didn't do it. Now, there's an interesting point. That, now, so obviously we have... So I never understood Pshat in all of this. I mean, the rooster turning white. First of all, the whole, the whole symbolism of the red and the white seems to be somewhat reversed. Red is usually sin. Torah, Duma. Sin. White is usually the purification. And here we reverse it. And when it's completely white, that's when all of a sudden, that's the moment to curse. And what's up is the rooster. Out of all things, the rooster? Chickens? Is that the word, Lila, that in the morning brushes, oh, see the one right oh, Very good, very good. We'll connect it to that. We'll connect it to that in a second. Now, 
it's my boy, huh? Like one second, one second. You'll see. You'll see over here. Yeah. I just want to point out at this point an interesting uh, fact over here. Why is it? Why is it that he falls asleep and he doesn't curse? He misses it. So Hashem could have done the same thing to Bill. Put him to sleep for a few days. The Territ says we learned something very, very interesting over here. Again, this goes to the root of Bilam and the whole situation. What happens to this tzaddik? He wants to curse, just like Bilam. He, but he doesn't know as much as Bilam knows. So he tries to do this thing. He falls asleep, he wakes up, he says, Shema no. I learned from here that I shouldn't curse. That's it, that's the end of it. Hashem gives him a little message. He learns the lesson. That's it, I'm not going to do it. It's wrong. What happens with Bilam? By, by him falling asleep, he's able to figure out from his falling asleep that Hashem holds it's not right, and he brings on the pasuk. Gam onu shlat tzadik loy toy ba'filu b'mining. Right? He learns a lesson from that. Right? It's there. And he says it's wrong. So I'm not going to do it. But Bilam goes to sleep. Hashem says, "Don't curse them. They're blessed. Don't do anything. Don't go with them." Next morning, he says, hey, "Let's try it again. Try it again on Hashem." He tries it again. He goes, the donkey stops, he gets another message. The donkey goes thing, and he starts beating away on his donkey. Finally sees the angel. Now he's finally chasing. The point is, uh, Hashem does not interfere with free will. We see that if you want to do something really badly, that's the message over here. If you're a tzaddik, Hashem gives you a little bit of a hint. You learn the lesson and that's it. If you're going to be a bilam, that's your free will. You want to see evil. You want to do evil. You're just constantly doing it. You're not going to take no for an answer, no message. And that's what we see from Bill. Constantly one message after the other. Till finally, well, we'll get to what happened finally. But that's why Hashem didn't just put him to sleep. Because, we're tr- and Hashem is trying to give us a lesson with this as well. And he's trying to give the Goyim a message. With the whole complaint that they're saying, why don't you give us another Moshe? And if you give us a Moshe, we'll be like the Jews. Now Hashem is trying to teach him something. Remember we learned that Rashi originally? That Hashem says, you know, what's going on? We're playing games over here. The guy was saying, if you give us... Rabbi, yeah. So, gever means male. Gever means gavra. Macho, powerful, very male man. Why is Bilam referring to himself as a gever? You know where else the word gever is used? The word gever is also used to refer to a rooster. The rooster's a male. That's a macho animal. A real macho animal. He has a harem of hens over there. He's, uh, the Gemara always refers to a rooster as a gever. That's why when we use the chicken, Arab Yom Kippur, it says that a man is supposed to use a rooster because it's a gever since we compare it to a gever and a gabor and, and, and that's, the, that's the replacement, that's the atonement. And the woman uses the, the hen. But, but the main reason why we do it is because of the man, the gever. A rooster is referred to as a gever. That's kind of an atonement. All of a sudden, the rooster now starts taking on a little bit of a significance in terms of the replacement of some sort of a aspect of the man. Now, says the Rebbeinu B'chai. Let's read now the Rebbeinu B'chai. Koro atzmai gever. He refers to himself, first page though, as a gever. Rebbeinu B'chai, that's... He compares himself to the rooster. Why? Because he has something in common with the rooster. Because only him and the rooster know the time. 
Nobody knows the moment of Hashem's wrath other than Bilam amongst mankind and the rooster amongst the birds. And they're both equally wise in this form of wisdom. When they say furthermore, that the rooster crows seven times at night, we likewise find Bilam seven times saying that he had this thing. He crowed seven times. Just like the rooster crows seven times, Bilam cockadoodle dude seven times. Furthermore, another similarity is the Tarnagol is considered the most promiscuous, as you said, of all the birds. Right? He has this harem of hens. Now, this is a cash that I had on the tower. For ages, and I never understood it. Centuries. Out of all the korbanos that you have on the mizbeach, we have we have cattle, we have sheep, and we have birds. Out of all the birds, you would think the chicken would be the one. Instead, the pigeons. Because of this, chickens are not offered on the mizbeach. This is the reason why a chicken is never brought on the mizbeach. Instead, we use pigeons and doves. And by the time you finish with the dove, you know how little it finally gets on the uh, on the altar because you have to take out the crop and uh, very little gets on. Why not a chicken? I mean, roast chicken. Also, the chicken is Well, he has a. Oh, doves! Doves are monogamous, right? The dove is the opposite of the of the rooster. Doves are monogamous, like Jewish people with Hashem, whereas roosters are very promiscuous. The chain bilam hoyanoyif. And we know Bilam was promiscuous, as Chazal say with his donkey, etc., etc. And we find ultimately that the last act that Bilam did was to advise Bolok to get the Jews involved in promiscuous behavior. So Bilam, but he was, as to quote another famous person, Louis Farrakhan, he was wickedly great. That was Bilam. Now, Bilam is comparing himself to the Tarnagol. He knows this, this moment of evil. And in a sense, we can now reverse, therefore, the red turning to white. The essence of the rooster is, the very first brach we say in the morning, is, When you wake up in the morning, the first brach we say, Hashem has granted the rooster wisdom to know the difference between day and night, light and dark. It's a very, very powerful pasik, especially when they refer to the rooster over the night as a tyrannical, not as a gever, but as la sechvi. La sechvi is similar to the word seichel. Was given the human being the capacity to know good from evil. Human capacity to know good from evil. And we're comparing that to the rooster's knowledge of day and night. And when does this evil occur in the morning? It occurs sometime in the morning that only the rooster knows and Bilam is the one that knows that. In other words, there's some sort of a mysterious thing going on that strikes at the heart of the universe and of what mankind is about, and the nature of good and evil, and the rooster and Bilam, of this knowledge of good from evil, this moment. Bilam allowed himself to reach the pinnacle of greatness of the human being, but for the evil. Complete wickedness to know that moment of evil, that moment of... To know the clear distinction, like the rooster, the crack of dawn, he crows, he wakes you up. The difference between day and night. 
Milam knew that difference and he knew the evil. And that's where he comes in over here with the burden. That's why we have the story over here with the rooster as being the indicator of this evil. And the lesson that the Tana learns is that you don't utilize your tzaddik. It's a power that's there, but you don't try to use it. Don't use it. It's too powerful. It's evil. It's not for a tzaddik. It's Bilom. Bilom is the rooster. You're not a rooster. Don't use it. He learned the lesson and he stops doing it. But Bilom is going to continue doing it. Ultimately, Bilam and Moshe were focused in opposite directions. Whereas Moshe said, Hashem, whatever you want, I'll do your will. Bilam said, I'm going to know the mind of God. And I'm going to utilize and abuse it and manipulate it. Whereas the Jewish people are taught to be B'Tselem Elohim, in the image of God, where we let God work on us, where we say, Nasa Venishma, do to us, work on us. Bilam went in the totally opposite direction. Opposite direction. He was as great as Avraham Avinu. He understood monotheism. He understood what God was all about. But because of his evil character traits, he wanted to manipulate God rather than Hashem manipulating us. That's what he doesn't say. Well, by our yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't say, say that he heard because he doesn't. He doesn't hear. Doesn't hear. Doesn't comprehend it. But but Bilam himself was the paradigm of the person who reaches the same greatness as a Moshe Rabbeinu, but because of bad character traits, wants to manipulate Hashem rather than work in the opposite direction. Wisdom amongst nations you will find equal to the Jews. And that's why we find the famous story with Socrates. I don't know if it was with Socrates, a different philosophy with Socrates. Where he was as great as Navram Avinu. He died for his principles. He believed in God. But when he was caught in a compromising position, he says, I'm not a philosopher now. If you have those character traits, what is Torah? Don't believe that there's Torah amongst nations. Torah is that we subjugate ourselves to the will of the Torah, let the Torah work on us and work over our character traits. If we don't do that, you could have prophecy, you could have the greatest of powers, but you'll abuse it. You'll come to the generator of the universe. Nuclear power, splitting the atom. Right? That's the essence of the universe. I mean, it's amazing when you think about it in terms of, of modern technology, how we've finally been able to achieve the core of creation. The atom. The atom is the tiniest but it's also the greatest because everything is composed. And the splitting of the atom produces reaction. And it's such a powerful tool that it just depends on your personality and on your character traits. What do you want to do with it? If you want to build, you can build the greatest. If you don't, you can destroy it. You can destroy the whole life in this world. So this power, the guy were telling Hashem and saying, what is so great about the Jews? Of course they're great. They have prophets. You gave them such power. You communicated with them. Give us the same thing. I thought, just, no, I can't. If I give it to you, it's the most dangerous thing in the world. You'll abuse it. Because take a look, if you don't have the right character traits, you could be as great as Bilam. Bilam and Moshe were both born equal, with equal gifts, equal talents, equal powers, equal potentials. And based on a medrash that I once told you, the name of the first role with equally bad character traits, one could say. Remember the story of Moshe Rabbeinu that I said that he had all the bad character traits? What made Moshe Moshe 
was the subjugation of these bad character traits and the turning them over into something. What turned that over? Torah. If you don't have Torah, Navu is nothing. If you are not willing to learn Torah and work on yourself and do what the Torah demands of you, then the greatest gifts of the universe are going to be abused and it's going to be a dangerous weapon. It's going to be the most dangerous thing in the world. I can't give the nations of the world um, Nebuah. Why? Because he didn't accept the Torah. That's what Hashem was telling them. Hashem was like, I'm going to give you prophecy? Claudius, I offered you the Torah. But you went with an opposite approach. I offered the Torah to the Jews. I offered the Torah to the Goyim. The Jews said, Nasa Nishma. We accept the Torah. We're going to let the Torah work on us. Nasa Nishma means the Torah is going to work on us. Like angels, we're going to be robot to Hashem. Then I can give you everything else from there. Once you have that, all the other things are going to be are going to be helpful and going to build. You'll have Torah. Once you have Torah, you can have Chochmah. The Chochmah will produce greater gifts. And you can have prophecy. And you'll grow and you'll build and you'll create. But if you don't take Torah, that's Hashem is answering the guy. You know why I don't give you prophecy? Because look what happens if I give you the gift of prophecy. Prophecy is not a cure-all. It's not going to solve all your problems. It's not going to be the end of it all. You could have the greatest social programs and the entitlement programs and the socialists. And, but if people are wickedly evil, what did Jesse Jackson say? That uh, we have to know what's in the heart of all these young kids, that jails will step up for them. They live in cities with broken glass and with broken windows and with broken cars and with broken cities and broken buildings. And they're living in such abject poverty. we got to do something. We jails will step up for them. What he neglects to say is, who broke the glass? Who George Bush didn't take beer bottles and throw them on the sidewalk. They did it. You can give them everything, but they'll break it. Who broke the cities? Who broke the buildings? Who broke the country? Who broke the glass? Who broke shattered the windows? They did. Kill Zion. If you go on a rampage and you don't have the Torah and you lack the self-control, whatever we're going to give you is going to be more dangerous. More freedom, more danger. So you'll use the money for what? For Nike sneakers, for drugs, and for Uzi submachine guns. So we can't give you money. Money then is dangerous. You give a Jew or you give a good person money, he'll use it and he'll build a yeshiva with it. He'll build good things with it. But you give the same billion dollars to people that are evil, even if they're talented, even if they have the greatest minds. But if they have the character traits of a Bilam, then you're going to go further. Look at the students. Bilam sometimes, he sounded good, but he went around the whole world telling people about monotheism, about one God. He believed in one God. And he told Bolak, and he told Bolak, build altars in Hashem and only what Hashem says. He sounds good. And he talks real good. But if you have evil character traits, you'll see the advice that he gives to be totally destructive. Worse than everybody else, because you're going to use your, your genius for wickedness. So therefore, Bill was working in the opposite direction. Hashem is telling the, the, the Goyim, that's what Rashi's telling us. Rashi's saying that the Goyim asked, give us Navu and we'll be like the Jews. No, without Torah, I can't give you anything. If I give it to you, it'll be worse. You'll utilize it, you'll abuse it, and you'll make worse things out of it. You're going to create a monster, a Frankenstein. If I give you the power of life and death, you're not going to make good people, you'll make monsters. If I give you prophecy, you'll develop into a Bilam. And Bilam will use it to promote more promiscuity and to look for evil, to look for wickedness with all the genius. So how can I give you prophecy? It's a dangerous tool. If you have the Torah, I can give you prophecy. But if you don't have the Torah, prophecy is not going to be a cure-all. Entitlements aren't going to help. You can't give entitlements if you're wicked. If there's no values, there's no family values, whatever you want to call it. 
that whatever you're going to give the person is going to go to the garbage. Like the Germans, exactly. If you're wicked people, the greatest technology and culture, whether it's poetry, whether it's music, Wagner, his greatest music, they're, they're philosophers, Nietzsche, they're, I mean everything, their technology, to make weapons, to make methods of destruction, without Torah, without willing to work on yourself, Torah Bagoyim al Tamin. Don't believe anybody that tells you there's Torah out there. Believe there's wisdom out there, don't believe there's Torah out there. And if there's no Torah out there, there's only wisdom, then we got to be very judicious as to what gifts we give this wisdom. If we give prophecy with the wisdom, the worst things are going to come out of it. Dilam knew as much as Moshe. They both developed with the same talents and potential and powers and abilities and evil character traits. But Bilam grew in his evil. Moshe Rabbeinu turned it over because of the Torah. Moshe's prophecy was therefore used for good to build Torah. Bilam's was to build himself up for the evil. Hashem, you have granted the human heart the ability to discern dark from light, day from night, good from evil, like the rooster. But you could develop into the greatest good, or you could be Bilam and develop into the greatest evil, like the rooster. The rooster is only, is only an example that we should learn from. Obviously, we're not trying to say that roosters are bad, because roosters don't have the ability to distinguish between good and evil. But they don't have you in mind. But we could learn from the rooster this lesson, that when his crop turns white, it's pure evil. Right? When Bilam has the greatest power, it's pure evil. Usually just the opposite. Red is bad, white is good. But in the rooster's case, give him all the white, and what do you have? All that power? Bilam uses it for evil, for the evil eye. Now let's understand the original question about the prophecy aspect. How does he have such prophecy though? If prophecy requires a person to be able to totally subjugate himself to Hashem, especially if you want prophecy of Moshe. If you're arrogant and you want to manipulate Hashem, if you want to manipulate Hashem, then that's the opposite of prophecy, really. Bilam wants to use his powers, equal to Moshe, to manipulate Hashem. This is the kind of a person that no matter what you give him, you give him the greatest powers, you give him to Hashem, he wants to manipulate Hashem, rather than subjugate himself to Hashem. He reverses the whole thing. Hashem tells him a lesson. Ultimately, good will prevail over evil. How's that? What does it say when Bilam says prophecy? So the Pasuk says a very interesting thing. Hashem bumps into Bilam, so to speak. Bumps into him. In other words, that's the opposite of Moshe. If you look at the beginning of Vayikor, there's a small olive there. And Moshe, in his humility, wants to do, skip the olive and say Vayikor. Hashem like bumps into me. Vayikra means he calls me. There's a calling. Hashem calls me. The difference ultimately between Moshe and Bilam, and, and this is also a very remarkable thing. Moshe Rabbeinu on his own wanted to say, I'm nothing. Hashem bumps into me. Vayikar. But the truth is it was Vayikra. Hashem calls him. It's a calling. But precisely because Moshe wanted to reduce himself, the Aleph, right? The Aleph. Who's the Aleph? That's number one. Who's number one? The Ani. Who's number one? The Aleph. That's me. If you reduce your your Aleph, your Ani, it's Vayikar, then it becomes a Vayikra. Moshe, by trying to be, to trying to say, I'm nothing. It's only a Vayikar. It's in reality a Vayikra. In Bilam's case, it's a Vayikar. He bumps into him. But then it says, Vayosim Hashem Dovor Bifi Bilam. And Hashem placed 
something or dove or the word in the mouth of Bilam. And he said to Bilam, go back to the Kaisa Dabir and say the following. So Chazal point out a very unusual turn of phrase. Hashem put the matter or something in the mouth of Bilam. What did he put in the mouth of Bilam? So Chazal said he put a hook there, a muzzle. Like what you put in a fish. As Bilam's shaking, he doesn't want to curse. He wants to curse. Hashem is forcing him to bless. In other words, what Hashem is telling him is a lesson over here. There are two ways you could be a conduit of Hashem's will and be totally subjugated and be made into nothing. Either you do like Moshe and you make yourself into nothing, or if we go head to head, I'll make you into nothing and you'll say a prophecy like Moshe, but not because you deserved it, because you are a nothing. I'm going to make you into nothing. He puts a muzzle on him or a bit in his mouth and he contorts his mouth and it's the exact same prophecy coming out of Bilam's mouth as out of Moshe's mouth. Why? What do we say by Moshe? How Hashem speaks, the voice of the Shechina emanated through the mouth of Moshe, through the throat of Moshe. That's what we say by Moshe. The exact same thing happened with Bilam. The voice of Hashem was going through Bilam without him having anything to do with it. So what's the difference? This is where the prophecy of Bilam and Moshe is the same. Because the voice of God was emanating the same way from both. The difference is Bilam was like a muzzle of an animal, a hook of a fish. Moshe achieved that level. Moshe became the pipeline of Hashem. Bilam was contorted and forced into it. That's the lesson of the donkey. The donkey talked. How did the donkey talk? The donkey became human. Hashem, you talk. You're a donkey, you talk. I made the donkey talk. Hashem is telling Bilam, ultimately you're going to be the donkey. You're not going to be any different than the donkey. You're not any different than the donkey. As a matter of fact, the donkey's smarter than you. Because as Hashem was sending him messages the whole time, Bilam do tshuva. He sends an angel in the way. And the donkey understands the lesson. The donkey understood the lesson. Stop. Because it's dangerous. Bilam didn't understand the lesson. Bilam didn't understand what's going on. Hashem is saying, hey, the donkey's smarter than you, and I can make the donkey talk, but it's meaningless. The donkey didn't become brighter because he spoke. The donkey was became a wiser creature, became a great creature because he spoke, but nothing was still a donkey. The donkey was worked on, was acted upon, but he didn't grow. Bilam, you're going to say the same prophecy as Moshe, because you're a nothing. Because you are a nothing. And I'll make you into nothing, and I'll force you to do it, to give a blessing rather than a curse. That's how Bilam's prophecy and Moshe's prophecy can be the exact same. Even though Moshe was one of Mikol Adam, and Bilam was the most arrogant of all people, but ultimately, Bilam was knocked down, smashed down. He squashed. See, he's also nothing then. The difference is he didn't do it to himself. So his, his, final, his final end was death and destruction. That's what Bilam was by the end. But now there's one other lesson to learn from all this. And I think this is the most remarkable key lesson of all. Yeah, maybe we'll do so one part before that. Why did Hashem want Bilam to bless the Jews though? He could have still prevented him and he still made the donkey and all of these lessons and everything else. Why did Hashem want Bilam to bless the Jews? And when we think of the blessing that Bilam gave the Jews, there's something more unique and remarkable about it than any other blessing. It's really almost the admitting of the entire world that the Jewish people are, are special. It's when the Goyim themselves agree to the uniqueness of the Jewish people, that's what Mashiach is all about. That's why Bilam talks about the lesson of 
of Mashiach. Bilam's message and prophecy is the prophecy of Mashiach. And he goes through all the things, and he talks about the first Mashiach and the second Mashiach, where he says over there, um, I mean, these prophecies are just such, such elegant prophecies. I see it, but not now. It's not in the near future. A star will shoot forth from Jacob, become shaved me, Israel, and the scepter shall arise from the Jews. And it will smite all the nations. And then he goes on to say over here how the Jews will reign supreme. And he talks about Amalek, their destruction. And Rashi brings out from Chazal, who are these two things? One is referring to David HaMelech, and one is referring to Mashiach. David being the first Mashiach, the first anointed, Mashiach being the last one. And he talks about how all the nations will finally, and he goes to all the other ones. And he goes and he says how the Jews are going to reign supreme, how the Jews are by themselves, the Jewish people are a unique nation, they dwell by themselves, they're not like the other nations. All of these things. Hashem is getting Bilam, the head of all the nations of the world, to admit and to grant the uniqueness of the Jewish people and to admit to the final, the final resolution of all of mankind's problems, how the Jewish people are going to reign supreme. Hashem wanted it to come from the Goyim as an admittance to the Jews. If he puts it forcefully in his mouth, what, what, that? what value is that? The, the point is that, so, so now it's like this. Let me point out two points, one from Rebbeinu B'chai and one from the Meshachachma. Rebbeinu B'chai says that it was important to not allow Bilam to give a curse. Because had he have given a curse, and later on, after the Jews sinned, 24,000 Jews would have died, they would have attributed it to the curse of Bilam. He said, aha, you see he has the power. And what would it have done? It would have galvanized them to say, hey, you can fight the Jews. The Mesha Chochma says a most remarkable, profound insight to all of this. Hashem wanted Bilam to bless the Jews because in that one little action, Hashem was able to play the greatest form of psychological warfare against all the guys. When the Jews entered the land of Israel, this was their last hope, Bilam. Bilam's going to curse. And Hashem contorts his mouth and the donkey and everything else to force him to bless the Jews. At this point, they melted. They lost their total morale to the point where they were a walkover. It made the war much easier. If Bilam would have been successfully cursed, then Hashem could say, his curses are meaningless. But the fact is, free will is still granted to mankind. And the people that would want to fight against the Jews would fight with a renewed vigor. And Hashem wants to effectively short-circuit that as well. And to play the greatest form of psychological warfare, he took Bilam, he chose Bilam, and Bilam comes in, curses, blesses the Jews, and they are counting on Bilam. And they go, Hashem is on their now we have nothing. Now we're shattered. As a result, later on when Rochav tells them, says, says we're all melted. We're, we have nothing. There's no power left within us to fight against the Jews. Because even the great mighty Bilam blesses the Jews rather than curses them. So it was two things. Firstly, that they shouldn't attribute all bad future events to Bilam's curse. Whether it's the Holocaust, whether it's future exiles. There should be no, no shot that anybody should say, well, Bilam's curses were pretty effective. Take a look at what happened to the Jews in the future. And secondly, it was the greatest form of psychological warfare possible against, against the Goyim of the time. That's what Hashem wanted to do. But however, in a more cosmic sense, 
In terms of the ultimate thing of mankind, this is where the Yaakov says this. He says, Hashem wanted the evil angel, so to speak. The devil himself should concede. The Yetzirah should concede the greatness of the Jewish people. And this goes to the heart of the, the whole message of evil in the universe. That ultimately it has to admit itself to the fact that good reigns supreme. And the Jews the ability of good to reign in the final resolution of mankind and that good comes out of evil which we talked about the other day how from the greatest darkness shoots forth the greatest light and perhaps with this we can understand the greatest mystery and the greatest lesson of the entire Bilam Bolok story look now back at the Gemara on the first page where it's underlined well you know let's start from the part right after the brackets Vayokam Bilam Baboker Vayach he saddled his donkey. Tonam Mishum Rab Shimon ben Elazar, Avram Mevatel Ashur Shal Gedula Mei Avram. Yichsevayash came Avram Baboker. Sinam Mevatel Ashur Shal Gedula Mi Bilam. Shenemar Vayokam Bilam Baboker Vayach Moshe Two people saddled their donkeys in a unique manner. Avram, at 137 years, wakes up early in the morning to totally subjugate himself to Hashem in a mindless manner. The opposite of manipulation. Right? Of Hashem. Remember, we're talking about the contrast between Bilam and Avram. You know what the contrast is? Why do we talk why Bilam and Avram? Because Avram was the first revolutionary in mankind's history to understand the philosophy of monotheism, to understand Hashem. And he taught mankind and he used reason. But precisely because Avram was as brilliant as he was and as innovative and creative as he was, he had to be the first Jew. It wasn't enough for Avram to be a Socrates. Avram had to be the first Jew. And I once told you guys this message. That's why the story of Ur Kastim is never mentioned in the Torah, where Avram was willing to go to the fiery furnace. Because at that point, he wasn't a Jew yet. At that point, he sacrificed himself for principle, which is something that Goyim do also. Because Socrates did the same thing. You're a philosopher, you come to a philosophical understanding of something, and you say, you know what? I understand, and I'll die for my principles. I'm going to die. I'm also somebody. And I believe in it. And, you know, what was it? Uh, who was it? Uh, Gal- uh, Galileo. When he asked him to recant about the earth and the sun. So he mutters by the end. He says, yeah, but, uh, but the earth still goes around. Whatever I say, it's still like that. But he didn't, have the, he didn't have the goal to be able to say, hey, that's what it is. Socrates did. Avram was the same thing. But that's all. Goyim had the same thing. What made Avram a Jew is this willingness to subjugate yourself beyond reason, after reason. Not because you are able to comprehend and philosophize and believe. Hashem tells you, sacrifice your only son. And you're willing to do that. That's Nasev and Ishma in its purest form. That's when the person says, I don't understand, it doesn't make any sense, but I'm going to do it. But Hashem is working on me. He manipulates me, I don't manipulate him. So Avram got up in the morning, and he saddled his donkey to show his great desire in this level of following the will of Hashem mindlessly. When we say mindlessly, we're talking about a great mind. We're not talking about mindless people, because it's no kunz for a dumb person to be mindless. Right? If a dumb person is mindless, it's a big deal. To be an animal, when you're only an animal, it's no... If you're brilliant, and you do it as an act of will, where you muzzle yourself, 
Vayachvosh es chamoro. When Avram was able to Vayashkim Avram Baboker, Vayachvosh es chamoro, and he saddled his donkey. The chamoro also is the chumrius. Chamor comes from chomer, the physicality. And he's able to do it to himself. He muzzles himself to do the will of Hashem. That's, that's, that's the greatest level. Dilam did the exact same act, but totally opposite. Not as an act of love, as an act of hatred. Avram was 137 years old, an old man, but he's so anxious and enthusiastic to do the will of Hashem that at 137 years old, with all servants, he'll go out, wake up at the crack of dawn, saddle his donkey, because he's yearning to do the will of Hashem mindlessly. Dilam is the opposite. He's the haughtiest person around. Right? He's the greatest, haughtiest person around. And he's been saying, I want the most distinguished people to come for me. All of a sudden, he's waking up at the crack of dawn and he's sitting under his car doing an oil change because he wants to, he's anxious to go on the trip. Right? Can you imagine? Guy sitting, this great guy over there, uh, is sitting on the, under his car and his hands are all greasy. He's making the oil change. This is what doing. He's saddling his own donkey. This is the arrogant Billam. But he hated the Jews so much. His desire for wickedness and evil and to manipulate Hashem was so great that he did the precise act of Avram, but in a totally opposite direction. It says Ramesh Feinstein, I should point out over here at this point, that there's a tremendous lesson to be learned from this. Because Rashi says, when Bilam did this, he said, ah, Avram already beat you to it. So Ramesh says a very interesting point in this. What do you mean? Hashem tells Bilam, Avram beat you to it. And if Avram wouldn't have beaten him to it, then what? What does it mean? It means it would have been a tremendous kitshrug, an accusation against the Jewish people. When Goyim out there do their thing with enthusiasm, and we lack the equal enthusiasm for good things, it's an accusation against the Jews. If they run to a ball game, and they cheer, and they go rah, 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 and they speed 70 miles an hour to do their wickedness, and their evil, and their avarice, well, we got to act the same way for our good things. That's what Hashem told Bilam. Hashem said to Bilam, you think that with your fervor and enthusiasm to do evil, you're going to be able to show that the Jews are pretty slack. Eh? They learn, yeah, but you know how this they learn, they roll in. And you're doing with such great enthusiasm, Avram did the same thing already. He had the exact same enthusiasm and he beat you to the punch to do good. Says of Moshe, we've got to learn from this that we have to learn from our surrounding society as well. That when people are doing something with fervor and enthusiasm, we got to learn from them. Onu rotsim vehem rotsim. It says, remember we talked about in the, the tefillah that you say before you daven. We run, they run. They run to Gehenim. We run. Well, we got to run. We got to learn from them. We got to do that running. They're running to the, to, to, to the hell. Jerry, you you got to run like them. And sometimes we got to learn the lesson from ourselves. You know, I, I don't know how many of you, are, I mean, you're all familiar with the famous base Halevi that I've learned with you woe to us from the rebuke right Yosef rebukes them right? we went through a whole shir on that yeah and, and, and therefore Hashem is going to show you from your actions how you're hypocritical that's that message over there with, with the base Halevi there's one more part that medrash that we always neglect when we're there it says over there what, what did the medrash say it says, woe to us from the day of rebuke and the day of judgment. Yosef, the youngest of the of the brothers, rebukes the brothers and they can't respond. How are we going to respond to Hashem? Yosef was the youngest and they couldn't respond. How are we going to respond to Hashem when He shows us up for what we are? So the Beis explains, it's referring to the hypocrisy. 
Everybody has judgments, but everybody has excuses. You use excuses for what? And Hashem shows you up that you're hypocritical. What do you mean you had a headache so you didn't come to learn? I remember that time you had the exact same headache, but it wasn't <laughs> for that. And you ran good. So what do you mean a headache where I can't move? Right? You could move when you want to move. That's the rebuke aspect where I show you up from your actions. You know what the next part of it was? Next part of the Medrash is Bilam couldn't respond to his donkey. His donkey, the wisest of humans, is being rebuked by the dumbest of animals. And he couldn't respond. How are we going to respond to Hashem? The fact is, it's the same message. <clears throat> Dilam, his donkey, he saddles his donkey, he's ready to run and he's ready to roll and he's ready to do the Avera. But it's, it's rebuke because it shows you the evil. How are we going to respond to, to the same kind of a thing? we got to learn from the guy. That's just on the side. The Ramayusha says, what was I getting at? I already forgot. So what do we see from here? We see that Avram and Bilam were responding the same way in totally opposite direction and dependence in the heart. Avram says, I want to be acted upon. I'm going to do the will of Hashem. Nasev and Ishma, the wisest person but he wants to allow himself to be manipulated by Hashem. Bilam, wisest of people, greatest of prophets, like Moshe, he runs with enthusiasm to do evil, to do wickedness, to use an evil eye, to try to promote greater evil, and to manipulate Hashem, rather than to be manipulated by Hashem. The greatest of evil, they're going in opposite directions. Now let's continue the Gemara. And this is maybe the uh, punchline to the whole thing. I'm sure most of you don't even realize. The part where it's going to be underlined on the bottom. Omar Rabbi Yudom Arav Lo'olam yasak odom b'tayro u'b'mitzvah Afilu shalom l'shmo A person should learn Torah and do mitzvahs Even not for the sake of heaven Even with ulterior motives Even if your motivations aren't pure You shouldn't let the little bit of evil There be an excuse not to do It's a very important lesson Because you always get accused Hypocrisy and you have no business doing it And who are you to do it And you're not on that madriga Don't listen to that a person should always do good things, even if they're not up to it yet. And they're doing it with not the greatest of motivations. You still should do good. Why? Because you keep going and rising. You can have a lot of evil mixed in, but there's a little bit of good. And you're pointing up, you'll purify it, you'll get greater good, greater good, greater good, and the evil will be diminished constantly. So it says, why should we take Because from not doing things for the sake of heaven, you'll eventually come to it. Where is this lesson learned from? It's learned from Bolok. Shebizchar arbo shtaim korbonash hikriv Bolok. Bolok sacrificed 42 cows and animals for Hashem. Curse the Jews. Shalom Shema. You know what Bolok got for this? You know who came from Bolok? Rus. Rus came from Bolok. Zoho 